this, there we go. So today, I want to talk to you about a very simple but profound concept and a profound reality. And that's the idea of seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord. You know, I said in my prayer just a moment ago that, you know, God's Word is alive and active because God is present in it. You know, if this, if this book did not have God behind it, there'd still be a lot of wisdom here, wouldn't there? It's an incredible book. There'd still be a lot of literary value here. I was just talking with a friend of mine who is a pastor, and he's kind of one of those really geek-out, nerdy pastors, and he loves ancient dead languages and ancient dead texts. And we were talking about uh, how uh, uh, in seminary, both of us, we had to read a book. And this book was the collection of all of the known uh, documents from the ancient Near East that have survived. Now, this was, you know, almost, this is 20 years ago, so I'm sure they've discovered more since then. But at the time, this was a collection of every single ancient Near Eastern document, basically all the things that were written the same time as the Old Testament. And one of the things that we both noticed was that the writing was incredibly boring. It was actually pretty hard to get through. Uh, obviously, there were parts missing because maybe they had a partial tablet or a partial scroll, but also... It was mostly just think, a king bragging about himself. And that's almost entirely absent from the Old Testament. You have a lot of David, for example, the king of Israel, uh, acknowledging his own brokenness, his own failure. You have the historians of the Old Testament, First uh, and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, First and Second Samuel, the writers noticing and observing the failures of the kings of Israel and God's judgment on them many times. Even when they did well, it would point out how they didn't do it perfectly. It's almost the exact opposite of what you read in these other ancient Near Eastern texts. And so this book would have literary value if there were no God. If God didn't exist or if he wasn't behind this, it would still be a very valuable and incredible book. In fact, you could still go to it and find instructions for how to live a, a, a fulfilled life a joyful life. But if there were no God, then this book would not be alive and active. All right, it would just be a book. So if that's true, then what that tells us is then what makes it alive and active is that the Lord is present. That the Lord is present. The Holy Spirit is at work when we come to it. And I've said this before, and, and if you've grown up in a certain type of Christian background, like the one I grew up in, where really the you know, kind of essential daily practice of life, of life and of faith is reading your Bible, which, by the way, I strongly encourage that you do that daily, that, this, that there's, there are a few things you can do that will be more valuable for you. Um, if, if you grew up in that, it will be a little jarring to hear this, but, um, you know, I actually don't think reading your Bible every day is commanded in Scripture. You know why? For most of history, you would not have been able to afford a Bible. You would not have had access to a Bible. The only place you would have heard... The, you know who had their own Bible? The king. The king was the only one who had his own Bible. All the other scriptures were community scriptures. And so what you would do is you would go to the temple, to the synagogue, to a place in town, and you would gather... And there would be a communal scroll, maybe of part of the Bible, and you would read it out loud. And then you would try to rem remember it and memorize it and meditate on it. And I bring all this up to say this. What was not so important for believers throughout most of history was not that they read their Bible every day. What was most important is that they seek the Lord every day. And I bring this up because I fear sometimes... now. It may be that you don't read your Bible regularly, and I encourage you to take up that practice. But even if you do, it would be so easy to go to the Bible for the Bible's sake instead of going to the Bible for the presence of God. And so today, we're just going to talk about this concept of seeking the Lord. Seeking the Lord, not just learning about Him, not just reading about Him, but actually meeting with Him and knowing Him.
and the profound impact that can have on your life. So one of the great spiritual giants in the Bible is, in fact, King David. King David is described as a man after God's own heart. God said this, by the way. If you, do you know the story of King David? He, he was a shepherd out in the fields. He was called in by Samuel and told that he would be the next king of Israel. At the time, there was a king named Saul. And Saul, actually, at the beginning, really liked David. Why? Well, David killed that giant, Goliath, when everyone else was afraid to do it. David would play his harp and sing for him when he was in a bad mood, and he would lighten his spirits. David would lead his armies into battle and become victorious over their enemies of Israel. But Saul became jealous, and eventually he tried to kill David because he knew that God had also let him know that his, his kingdom, his kingship was ending and the David's would begin. So he tried to kill David. David was on the lamb. He was out running, hiding out in the wilderness and um, eventually had the opportunities to kill Saul, but he never took them. But God took care of Saul and David became king. And then David becomes this great worshiping king. He writes many of the Psalms. He uh, follows after the Lord. He, he describes taking out his personal scroll of the law of God and reading it, meditating on it, finding joy in it, delighting in it. But he was also a king who just loved the Lord. He had a deep, intimate, personal relationship with God, which we see in the writings, uh, the Psalms, for example. We see his interaction with the Lord, how he uh, encourages himself when he's feeling afraid. He, he faced a lot of danger in his life. And you may know he also sinned. He sinned pretty bad. He had an army officer. and He sent that army officer out in the battle intentionally to kill him because he had committed adultery with that man's wife. And he, she had gotten pregnant. You know, these, these things that look like, you know, they are blemishes on his character and his record. But it's after all of that that God says, David is a man after my own heart. He's a person who humbles himself before me, who seeks me, who delights in my presence. That's the kind of person David is. So when we get to Psalm 63, if you have your Bible handy, um, there's a little note that says, when he was in the desert of Judah. A Psalm of David when he was in the desert of Judah. This is probably, probably a time when David was on the run. Probably when he was in hiding. When he was struggling just to survive because people were trying to kill him. And this is what he writes. And this is what he prays. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory. Because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live, and in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. Because you are my help, I sing in the shadow of your wings. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. They who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals. But the king will rejoice in God. All who swear by God's name will praise him, while the mouths of liars will be silenced. Now, when David writes this psalm, and when he writes psalms like this, again, so I didn't mention this before, but when he was king, he actually had to, to run away from, from Jerusalem. And he was being tracked down by one of his sons who was trying to kill him and become king. And, and here he is. He's out in the desert. He's out there, and he's, in verse 6, On my bed I remember you. I think of you through the watches of the night. What's he talking about? Well, well David actually, is, he's, he's out there in the desert, and he's being chased and tracked down. So he has, he has guard duty. He's got to stay up. 
in the middle of the night to make sure no one comes and attacks him. But in those moments, he remembers the Lord. Why? Because God is his help. He says, I sing in the shadow of your wings under the Lord's protection. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Those who seek my life will be destroyed. They will go down to the depths of the earth. David trusts that the Lord will be the one to protect him and that his enemies will experience their own demise, that they won't overcome him. Instead, they will be overcome. They will be given over to the sword and become food for jackals, for wild animals. They're going to be the ones to die in the desert. Not me, Lord, because you're faithful. But it's that part that comes before those first five verses that I want us to focus on this morning. Can you imagine what it would be like to be on the run from the government, from the army, from your own son who's trying to kill you? Can you imagine the kind of turmoil you would experience in that? And I, you know, apart from the emotional piece, it's just the physical rigor of it all as well. You know, we had a neighbor who moved in for, they rented in a house in this, on this street, and they moved in because their house had caught on fire, right? They, they lost everything. And so there were uh, clothing drives and, and uh, fundraisers for this family so they could have what they needed to start over. And, you know, one of the things I talked to them, and I said, you know, how are you doing? And they said, you know, uh, it's just so, it's just so um, jarring to, to lose your home like that and to be kind of thrust out of that place and to have to start over. And, of course, they're in this nice home in Denham. You know, they're not, they're not running around in the desert, sleeping on the ground and, you know, hoping they, they're not attacked by wild animals. Yeah, it's just hard to imagine that, that state, that, that difficulty of that place. And at this time, David's not a young man anymore. He had done this before, probably in his 20s. But now he's had multiple sons who've grown up and who are old enough to try to take over the kingdom. So imagine doing this in your 50s. You know, it's not as fun to camp when you're 50 as it is when you're 40. It's not as easy on the body to be on those long journeys, to be running And yet, what David says is, what I really need, Lord, is you. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Notice he doesn't say, my body longs for you like in a dry and weary land where there is no water. He is in a dry and weary land. He is in a desert. He is in the wilderness. But he's not saying, God, send me water and food. He's saying, God, send me your presence. Send me your presence. More than anything, that's what I want. He probably is hungry. And yet he says, send me your presence. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. You know, as I come to a passage like this and even think about how to, how to preach it, one of the things that comes up for me as a pastor is, I know I can't just tell you, you need to long for God. Right? That doesn't do anything there's this reality that you, you kind of can't make yourself want something, right? You can't make, you can't just choose. It's this weird dynamic. You can't choose to want something. You either want it or you don't. But I do wonder, what kind of things can we do to cultivate that desire in ourselves? To cultivate that longing? Um, this is a really silly example, but as a kid, I did not like pie. I mean, just, you know, pie, like apple pie, chocolate pie, maybe chocolate pie. 
but pecan pie or pecan pie, depending on where you go. Uh, strawberry rhubarb pie, peach pie. Didn't like it. Didn't like pie. You know why I didn't like pie? I had never had pie. My grandmother served pie every single time we went to her house. Every single Sunday afternoon lunch, she served pie. And I refused to even try it because I was convinced I didn't want it. Because she had jello. I wanted jello. Now, looking back, I think, what a tragedy that I chose jello over real, genuine southern pie, or pie as we call it. What was I thinking? But I didn't know any better. I didn't know. I had not cultivated a delight for pie. But you know what happened? One day I thought, fine, I'm just going to try the pie. And lo and behold, it became one of my favorite desserts very quickly. And probably it became one of my favorite desserts so quickly because I had gone so long without it. But then I decided to taste and see, which reminds me of a Bible verse. <laughs> taste and see that the Lord is good. I wonder how many of us do not long for the presence of God because we've never experienced the presence of God. There's another thing that can happen, which is you can experience it, but then you kind of get distracted and you go a long time without it. There are, there are months and even years that I've gone without even thinking about pie. But then the moment will come where there will be the pie. <laughs> and I think, oh, wow, I really miss pie. Again, ridiculous and silly analogy, but sometimes you can go so long, even having a daily quiet time and not really encountering the Lord, seeking the Lord. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in a, in a pretty good church, uh, and they told us, Christianity is, is more of a relationship than a religion. Now, the Bible actually has really good things to say about good religion. There's good religion and bad religion. Christianity, done well, is a really good religion because it's all about relationship, <laughs> you know? And so growing up, I, you know, I was always taught, when you get saved, you have a relationship with Jesus. And I would wonder... This is, why do, why do they call it a relationship? This isn't like any other relationship I've ever had. I talk to God, but he never says anything back. I don't know what it feels like to be with God. I only know what it, what it feels like to talk about God and to think about God. And that doesn't seem like much of a relationship. And you know what? I still believe that. That doesn't seem like much of a relationship. But what I've learned is that you don't have to stop at just thinking about God and talking about God and reading about God. That when you read about God, what it tells you to do is to be with God, to seek God, to earnestly seek Him, to long for Him, to desire Him. You know, this second verse that David talks about, um, can you move that over after he says, I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and glory. You know, for David, you know what he, mean, what he meant when he's talking about that? Is that he had actually been to the tabernacle and he had seen the glory of God come down on the tabernacle and fill it. In the Old Testament, we read about this, whether it's the tabernacle or the temple, that God would come like a cloud and he would descend on the sanctuary that he would descend on that tent of meeting or the temple and he would enter into it and then the high priest would go in and minister to the Lord once a year. David as king had been able to witness that. He says, I know you're real. I've seen your glory in ways that we can only imagine. 
but it's beyond the miracle. He says, because your love is better than life, my lips will glorify you. He could have said, because you're powerful and awesome and you show up like this big light, my lips will glorify you. He could have said, because, because I can't deny your existence, because I've seen your miracles, my lips will glorify you. So, but even when he brings up this incredibly miraculous, powerful moment, what he goes back to is, is that your love is better than life. So then in verse 4 he says, I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the richest of foods. With singing lips my mouth will praise you. So David talks about his longing. He talks about God's greatness. He talks about God's intimate love. And then he talks about his response of praise and worship adoration and satisfaction. I think many of us have never experienced that kind of satisfaction or have experienced it very rarely. So, if we're thinking about seeking the Lord, then the question might be for us today, one is, how do we do that? How do we seek the Lord? And look, there are a thousand different ways, maybe, to seek the Lord. And you may be doing something in your regular, ongoing, hopefully daily practice with the Lord that you find incredibly nourishing and fulfilling and you find that you connect with the Lord in powerful ways. But maybe you don't. And if you don't, what I want to submit to you is a, is a way to think about that, a way to think about it that can be, hopefully, a very rich and rewarding experience for you. So if you have that little sheet that I passed out, uh, why don't you grab that? And this was taken, we, as a church, we went through this book years ago. It's taken from a book called The Disciplines of the Christian Life by Eric Little. Eric Little is that, is that uh, main character in the movie Chariots of Fire. He was an Olympic runner for England. Uh, he, this was before World War II. He, he was the guy who refused to run on a Sunday because he felt like that would not honor the Lord. And so he became famous for his refusal to run. And so what they did is they moved him to an entirely different race, which is something that in track you, you basically don't do. You don't move someone from a 100-meter to a 400-meter race and expect them to compete with the greatest runners in the world. But that's exactly what he did. And he ran that 400-meter race, and he set a world record and became an Olympic champion. And then in the aftermath of that, in the, in the follow-up to that, which back then it wasn't too dissimilar from today, if you become an Olympic gold medalist, then you can pretty much be set for life, right? You can travel, tour, become a coach, become a, you know, continue to race, become, be sponsored by different uh, people who want to use you for advertising and all these things. Eric Little said no. That's not my purpose in life. I did that. It's done. And then he went to become a missionary in China. In the outbreak of World War II, the Japanese invaded China, and they uh, basically conquered a significant portion of eastern China. And that's where Eric Little was. And so they put him and other Westerners into an internment camp, basically a captivity, in captivity. And while he was there, he wrote this little book for the people that he was leading to Christ. So he, he was still a missionary. He, stayed, he actually had the opportunity to leave, but he didn't want to leave because the work of Christ was there, and he was called to be there and to minister. So he would lead people to Christ in this camp, and then he said, I need something to help disciple them. So he wrote The Disciplines of the Christian Life. And basically the book is a year-long guide through the scripture, through the concepts of the Bible, uh, to understand the, the basic theology of Christianity, Old and New Testament. But in the very beginning, he has two little pages where he says, here's some aids to your daily quiet time. Now, this is a guy, again, uh, you know, we're talking the 1930s. He's wearing a suit and tie all the time. He's kind of stuffy, you know, very you know, Presbyterian-ish kind of... Uh, a classic Presbyterian, you know, not, not charismatic, not 
some person who is, uh, you know, uh, out there or considers himself inventive or anything like that. Just a classic Christian minister. And what he says, basically, and we're going to look at is, is you need to have a personal encounter with the Lord every day. A real, explicit, personal encounter with the Father, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ, the Son. Every day. That's what the Christian life is all about. And so he gives us some aids. And I just want to go through these quickly. I'm going to be really quick on this. You guys can read. You can decide whether you want to do this or not. But it's just a thought. And this is something that I've made part of my practice and I found it very enriching. He says, the very first thing you do when you come to the Lord is the very first thing you do is you deal with yourself. You need to address yourself. David does this all the time in the Psalms. He'll tell his soul not to be downcast. He'll tell himself to trust in the Lord. He'll tell himself to look up and find the presence of God. So Eric Little encourages, the first thing you do today is you tell yourself and commit to yourself that you will surrender once again to the Lordship of Christ, that you will follow the Holy Spirit's leadership, that you will actually not only expect God to speak to you, but that you'll obey Him when He does. And you think about it. Would God, does, would God give you an instruction if He knows you're not going to fulfill it? Sometimes. But I think a lot of times, we want God to speak to us, but we're not really ready to obey Him when He does. We're not ready to follow His leadership. And so the first thing you do is you connect with what's going on for you, and you say, I will surrender to you today, Lord. Because the, the deepest sin in all of us is the desire to be the Lord of our own lives. And the biggest disruptive element of the gospel is that you are not the Lord of your life. Jesus is. That is the hardest thing in the gospel. So he says, I will follow your Holy Spirit's leadership today. I will do what he asks. I will go where he leads. And as he reveals it to me, help me, Lord, to fulfill this vow. So you make a commitment. You know, I remember uh, when I was younger and I was, um, I was a youth pastor and there was a lady who worked with our youth group, with us. She was a mom and she was kind of like the adult person. I was, I was 20, so she was the adult in the room, right? And um, I remember we would have these theological conversations. I was in Bible school at the time and we would have, uh, she would tell me, oh, I don't, believe, I don't believe God would do this or that the other. I'm like, well, it's right here. It says says he does it right here he did it right there he did it right there like what's the deal and she says well i just couldn't believe in a god who did that and i understand where she was coming from and this isn't to like oh how could she i think we all have some of those things but you know it's really it's really there's this attitude as a believer in christ that i think we need which is god whatever it is that you do Whatever it is that you call me to do, whatever it is that you say about yourself, I'm going to be committed to that. You know, basically what she was inadvertently saying was, you know, if God, if God is not made in, in the image that I have of him, if God is not made in my image, then I won't worship him. I won't believe in him and I won't follow him. And what God is trying to do for us is he's trying to say, look, here's the deal, guys. You're made in my image, not the other way around. So you need to be ready to and willing to submit to that. And there's a, there's a reality that if you do this part, this first task, if you do that every day, it starts to change you. When you verbally acknowledge that I will submit to you today, Lord, that I will submit to your Holy Spirit, that I will submit to your word today, it begins to change how you think and how you respond to the things that happen. It's transformative. Remember we said we're leaning joyfully into transformation. The biggest part of transformation that we struggle with, I think, is obedience. So here it is, very first thing. Next thing he says is be still. Recognize the presence of God. Um, I gave some examples of things you can pray related to this. Like, Lord, reveal to me your presence today. One of the things that I pray is show me where you are and what you're doing right now. Now, if I had said this 
in the church I grew up in, they probably would have said, what are you talking about? What do you mean God's showing where you are? God's everywhere. Theologically, they know that, right? But experientially, you need to know it as well. And I can't tell you how many times that God has given me an image of his presence with me. And by the way, there's this really weird thing. Like, who do you think gave you your imagination? And then it's the Lord, right? Why do you think he gave you your imagination? I think part of the answer is that he wants to work through your imagination. So, so what I, don't hear me saying this. It's all in your imagination. God's not really there. You're just imagining it. Now, what I'm saying is that God actually gave us the tools to visualize things that we cannot see with our eyes so that we could encounter him who is not seen by our eyes. I have a friend who told me whenever I would pray, I would put another chair in the room and I would imagine that God is in that chair. Now, let me ask you this. Is God in that chair? Absolutely. Right? Sometimes I get this image that God has got his arm around my shoulder. He's right next to me. Is God right next to me? Absolutely. This is not a false image. This is not a made-up reality. My friends that, that I grew up with would rightly say, God's everywhere. But then they wouldn't see the implication of that for their personal life with the Lord. If he's everywhere, then he is holding you. He is across from you. You are sitting in his lap, this great big daddy of a God, right? You can dance with him. Do you know you can dance with God? If you're dancing and God's there, what are you doing? Dancing with the Lord. Is he on his knees with you, with his arm over you, holding you as you cry and weep? Absolutely. So you activate this God-given reality of your imagination. But you do it in a, in a requesting kind of way. God, show me. Reveal to me your presence. And then I, I pray, Lord, thank you that you listen when I speak. When I say those words, it helps activate my faith to remember that God is listening. And thank you that you speak when I listen. God is a God who communicates. You know, these are, these are things that, that we can so easily miss. I can't tell you how many times I would, when I was a kid, we'd go on retreats, our youth retreat, and they'd say, all right, you've got 20 minutes, go have a quiet time. Well, what do we do? Pray and read your Bible. Okay. So I would go, Lord, I'm going to read my Bible now. I was one of those kids. <laughs> Lord, I'm going to read my Bible now. Um, thank you. I don't know what to pray. So I'd read my Bible. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I wonder about this and that. And I wonder what happened here. Oh, the historical thing is really, like, I was one of those kids too. And then they would blow a whistle, literally. And like, all right, I'm done. Have my quiet time. No encounter with the Lord. None whatsoever. No experience of his presence. But I read and I prayed. So I had a quiet time. And then I wondered, why do they call it a relationship? You see that? It's just, it's just such a big, big thing. It's actually recognize that God is present with you. And then this is what I was talking about earlier in our service. Then give thanks. And Eric Little, the way he talks about this, and I think I, I wrote it down verbatim from the book. Be specific about what gifts God has given you. Now, the things that follow are the gifts that he's given us. The perspective is that everything that follows is a gift from God. Okay? Remember your family. Is your family a gift? Does your family always feel like a gift? Is your family a gift even when they don't feel like a gift? And you're a gift to them when they don't feel like you're a gift. Your friends. Friends often feel like gifts. Sometimes not, but they are. Your church. Surprise, <laughs> we're a gift. Lessons learned, meaning the things that you had wrong that got fixed and corrected. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for correcting, rebuking, and challenging me. Challenge of difficulties. This is the one that's been hitting me the last month. 
God, not just find a way to thank you in the challenge, but God, find a way to thank you for the challenge. Lord, thank you that right now my work is really hard because I know that you're using that to change my character. Lord, thank you that right now uh, our family's having a hard time getting along because I know you're going to use that to bring up the things that we need to deal with that we've been running from and kind of pretending weren't there and sweeping under the rug. Lord, thank you that we're struggling financially because you're teaching me to depend on you and to find contentment in all situations, just like Paul did when he said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Lord, thank you for the difficulty. I'm going to tell you, that is, as my wife would say, ninja-level faith skills. That is, that's like, that's like high up there skill of faith. And it is a skill. But you only learn it by practicing it. So every day I find something difficult to thank God for. For new opportunities, for responsibilities, and then especially for Jesus Christ and the freedom and forgiveness found in the gospel. Lord, thank you. And then he encourages us to accept Christ for today. I used to really dislike this language. I was like, you know what, theologically, once and for all, I accept Christ and it's done. I don't have to keep going back and back and back because he's never going to let me go. And then I, I said, you know what, if Eric Little's telling me to do it, I'll try it. And I realized, oh, this isn't because God's letting me go. <laughs> this is because I'm letting him go. I need this for me. It's not that theologically he's not faithful. It's that I'm not faithful. That I need to once again receive Christ for today because I forget that he hasn't let me, let me go. I forget that theologically it's true that once I'm saved, that he holds me and he, I'm sealed by his Holy Spirit. Right? So each day, I accept Christ again. And I pray that the qualities that Jesus has, love, honesty, purity, unselfishness, the passion to do the will of the Father, that that would be my character. I'm praying that I would fulfill my destiny of being formed into the image of Christ. So we were, I, I mentioned earlier, Romans 8, 28, all things work together for the good of those who love him or, and are called according to his purposes. Verse 29, for those he called, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. Your destiny and mine is to be conformed into the image of Christ. So I'm praying every day that I would have that reality. Then he says, prepare for your day in light of his love and the world's needs. Two really big concepts there. In light of God's love and the need around me, God, what responsibilities do you want to add to my plan for the day? And what do you want to remove? Again, from this 1930s, 40s Scottish Presbyterian. You know, this is not, this is not out there. Like, oh, that's kind of weird that you would actually ask Jesus something or ask the Holy Spirit something and expect him to tell you what to do or what not to do. No, this is just basic Christian practice. It's just what, this is just the reality of what it means to be in Christ is that God speaks to you and you can hear him and you can follow him and obey him. So I literally get out my schedule for the day and say, God, what do you want me to add here? What do you want me to take away? And most days, someone comes to mind and I'll give them a call or some task that I wasn't thinking about comes to mind and I write it down and I do it. Most days that happens. It's not, it's not crazy weird stuff. By the way, you know what that feels like? That feels like a relationship. Like you ask God a question and he gives you an answer. Like you actually met with someone that morning and not just read about them in a book. Then God, what message do you have for me in your word today? What does the scripture show me about you, about me, about the world? And what do you... What do I need to obey? God, what do you want to say to me? What do you want me to do? And then I read the word with very different 
eyes, a very different heart. Because I'm going in with an expectation that God is present in these words and that he will speak to me through them. And they are alive and they are active because God is in them. And so an encounter with the scripture becomes an encounter with the author of the scripture. And honestly, you can do this part without one of these. And you know how I know? Because for about 5,000 years, believers did not have one. It was written, but they didn't have access to it. So what they would do is they would remember what, they, what was read publicly, and they would go over it in their mind, and they'd reflect on it. They would memorize it. Now, most people couldn't memorize the whole thing. Very few people did that. But they would have some of it. And they would remember some of it. Now, you have this incredible gift. And I believe that, you know, Gutenberg and his printing press were a gift from God. Right? So now you have one. You have one. It's in your hands. It's on your phone. It's in your room. It's at your house. It's on your computer. It's on your tablet. You can get it in audio format. You can get it for free in every format. It's all at your fingertips. But it's nothing if you're not encountering God in it except a really amazing book. If you find God in it, then it's living, active, sharper than a double-edged sword, dividing soul and spirit. That's the power. So then you read God's word. How long of a passage do you need to read? Maybe a verse. Maybe a book. Just depends. Holy Spirit can actually tell you. And then finally, remember your duty to be a witness for God. So it's been about, you start with you, then you go to God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, His Word, and then now the world. Lord, use me today to bear witness to you by my example and character in my home, at work, and in my free time. Make me ready to share your grace, mercy, and wisdom to those around me. Give me a message of your love and encouragement to share with another. Help me fulfill my prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. Give me a chance to share your gospel with someone today. You think God won't honor that prayer? That's right. And you go out in your day, and all of a sudden you're going out with intentionality and an eye to be used by the Lord. And then you know what's going to happen? You're going to see an opportunity. And because you prayed for it, you're more likely to take it. And then when you take it, you're going to find yourself really excited. And then you're going to think, wow, God is at work in my life today. You know what that feels like? A relationship. A relationship. It's not about an obligation. It's not about doing the right things. It's about you met with the Lord. He showed up. He spoke to you. You asked him for things. He responded. He used you. He gave you the power to do it, and then you got to experience the blessing of it. That sounds like a relationship. You know what happens when you do those things on a regular basis? You can't wait to do it again. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you. In the sanctuary. You may not see that cloud come down on the tabernacle, but you'll have seen God at work. And I beheld your power and your glory. I have beheld the power and glory of God. I've seen miracles. I've seen God at work. Because your love is greater than life, my lips will glorify you. You know how loved I feel when God gives me an, an image of Him putting His arm around me and holding me in an embrace? And letting me sit in his lap and dancing with me. You know how that feels? That feels incredible. So I will praise you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. I love to come here and worship. 
I love to worship at home. I like to worship in my car. I like to worship in the kitchen, wherever. Because I've experienced this now. And my soul will be satisfied with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. All right, so what i like for us to do is to take a little stab at starting the process of memorizing this so that when we are not in front of our Bible, then we can still meditate on the Word of God. And I believe that it will help us to have that longing. So, Astra, let's get verse 1 up there. And we're going to go through it a couple of times. So I'm going to invite you to say this out loud with me. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Let's stop right there. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Now, can you take that away, Astra? Just, yeah. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Now, without me. All right, back to verse 1. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. All right, without it. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. Verse 1. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Let's do the whole thing with the words. Oh, let's with the words. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Without the words. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. One more time. Oh, God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek for you. My soul thirsts for you. My body longs for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Without me, oh God. Now here's the thing. See if you can do that when you're in the car on the way home. Okay? All right. Then do it again when you get home. And then add verse 2. And I'm saying, let's, let's, let's learn these five verses. What a blessing that will be for all of us, right? Now, I don't know why, but there's a lot of folks who aren't here today. So you guys get a leg up. We're gonna, we'll, we'll do this next week, and we'll see who remembers any of it. If I want you to be really loud, right? And the people who weren't here, they'll have to catch up. But this is what it's all about. It's a relationship with the Lord. Relationship, love, longing, desire, passion. If you don't have this, then honestly, all the other stuff we talk about, it's going to feel like a burden. It's going to feel like, oh, why, why is pastor trying to get me to do that stuff? Why, 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 does he, why, do they want, why is the church asking these things from me? Like, no, 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 no. You get to do these things. And the Lord is the one who makes it possible. The Lord is the one who makes it work. So, uh, let's worship. Let's sing to the Lord with our lips. Let's praise Him. Let's praise His name. So I'm going to invite our team to come back up. And I want to pray for you. uh, But let me get situated real quick first. Let's pray. Lord, we, we want to long for you. 
And I think there's a part of us, each of us, or at least many of us, that we've probably felt the, the pang and the disappointment of not experiencing you as someone we're in relationship with, at least at some point or another. We have longed for something more. And God, I know that these ideas on a piece of paper that I handed out, they're not magic. They're, not, uh, they're really not anything special. But God, I do believe that when we orient ourselves to you and we ask you to speak to us and we ask you to guide us and we ask you to be present with us and we take time to acknowledge the reality that you are, that you work through that, that you show up. And again, not as a, not as a magical talisman, but as just a, a way that you're loving and good and faithful and you long for the same thing, that you long to be with us. And God, maybe that's the hardest thing for us to believe. That it's not just that we long to be with you. That actually makes a lot of sense. You're amazing. Me? I don't feel so great. But God, you, you invite us to do this because you also long for it. You also desire it. You don't need it, but you want it. Or we want it and we need it. So draw us close. Draw us into that deep place. And help us remember and understand that, that this is not just a religion. It is a relationship. And that's what's held out for us. That's, the offer, that's what's offered to us day in and day out. So we put all this into your hands. Even as we do our part, we trust that you are going to be the one who makes the magic happen. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, church, uh, again, this was not the message that we originally had planned for today. Um, and so, uh, you know, this isn't really a song of worship about connecting with the Lord or seeking his face, but it is about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ and, uh, and his goodness to us, and that's always an appropriate way to worship the Lord. So let's do this in Christ alone.